Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. We're still living in a pandemic, so officials want to limit crowds to keep the spread of coronavirus low. Does that mean out-of-town residents should be barred from accessing beaches, rivers, and lakes in communities that have these public waterways? That's what's happening in some Connecticut towns. Later this hour, we welcome back historian Andrew Carl to the show. In a recent New York Times op-ed, Carl asked who will get to swim this summer. He highlighted exclusionary policies that disproportionately affect lower-income families, Families, many from communities of color, who've already been affected by closures of public swimming pools because of COVID-19. We'll also hear from the town of Greenwich about the rules at its beaches. And we'll talk to a nonprofit group that focuses on river access in the northwest corner of our state. That's all coming up. First, quarantine fatigue is real. We know you've been feeling it because we feel it too. Now that it's summer, are you wondering if certain activities are really safe, even if you're outdoors? My next guest is an epidemiologist who says an all-or-nothing approach to disease prevention can have unintended consequences. Joining us on Zoom is Julia Marcus, who's also an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School. Julia, welcome to our show. Thanks a lot for having me. You wrote a piece uh, about a month ago or so in The Atlantic about quarantine fatigue. As I mentioned, uh, uh, some of us are still feeling that uh, fatigue. Can you talk about what you mean uh, with this idea that might be resonating with our listeners right now, where we know that we need to keep our distance from people, but, you know, we're going on five months and it can seem extreme at times. Yeah, I mean, if you think back to early March when things started to first shut down, I think we were all hoping this was going to be a short-term affair, that we would have a a few weeks of staying at home and schools closed, and then we'd kind of go back to business as usual. And of course, that's not at all how things have played out. And here we are months later, and um, that time that we spent... Uh, sacrificing and um, and staying at home as much as we could was not used the way it needed to be to ramp up public health infrastructure. So now we're kind of stuck. Um, but this approach of thinking about the two the two sides of the binary, the staying at home or going back to business as usual, is not one that's going to work in the long term. So we have to figure out what's going to be sustainable and and keep risk low, but not necessarily eliminate it. When we think about a strict lockdown that began in March in many places, including here in our state, uh, in your piece, you talk about, um, you compare this to the abstinence-only approach uh, to sex education or even drug use. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, I'm coming at this as an HIV prevention researcher. So that's kind of the the lens that I have been looking through for the last few months. And it became really clear to me in probably in late April, that we were stuck in an abstinence-only mindset, that we were both both in terms of our lockdown policies, but also our public health messaging, which has um, 
you know, it's adapted since then, but uh, there has been a lot of just stay home messaging. And I think we needed that at the beginning in early March to, to catalyze this um, big shift in behavior and, and society. But um, that is not, it's not sustainable. We can't ask people to abstain from sex indefinitely. Um, and we can't ask people to abstain from drug use indefinitely. We know that these strategies um, you know, while some people can abstain, are not overall effective for the whole population. It's the same thing now. We can't ask people to just stay locked in their homes forever, even if that is the safest from a transmission perspective. When people think about uh, distancing from their family and friends, again, at the start of a lockdown, uh, many of us were fearful and it made sense uh, to keep uh, our hospitals uh, not to become over uh, capacity. But at the same time, that can wear on people's mental health and, and the negative impact of, of trying to sustain this over a long period. It's just not possible. That's right. And I think that there are other options. Um, we are in some ways in a worse situation than we were in March and April, depending on you know where you're talking mm -hmm. about in, in the U.S. Um, but we are in a better situation in the sense that we have a, a clearer understanding of what situations and settings are higher risk and which ones are lower risk. And we should be able to craft our policies around, you know, lockdowns or whatever we, we call them, restrictions, um, to reflect that. And, and to also um, have our individual decision making that, we're, that each person is doing every day around, you know, moving, moving about the world be based on what we know about risk. It's not just you're safe when you're home and when you leave your home, you're, you're um, going to get infected. There's obviously a, a whole spectrum of risk and we want to help people be at the lower end of that spectrum while still getting their basic needs met around you know, social contact and, and also financial security. You're hearing Julia Marcus on Where We Live. She's an epidemiologist and assistant professor at Harvard Medical School. She wrote the essay, Quarantine Fatigue is Real for the Atlantic. And we're talking with her today about um, how, as the lockdown continues, how taking a more harm reduction approach to fighting COVID-19 transmission uh, may be a better approach uh, for many Americans uh, because of the issues we just talked about, how it's difficult to stay at home and stay away from people that we love or we want to see see. And so again, Julia, as an HIV researcher, looking back at the AIDS epidemic, what are some lessons that we can draw from way, that way that crisis was handled and looking at, again, having people adopt this more harm reduction approach today? Well, if we think back to the earliest years of the AIDS epidemic, um, at least, uh, you know, from from what I know from people who were around at the time, I was quite young, but um, the, the very early years were really um, not that different from what we're seeing now in the sense that there was a lot of confusion and fear about this new deadly virus that was particularly um, affecting the gay male community. And the earliest public health advice for that community was just don't have sex at all. And of course, that's not a sustainable public health strategy in the same way that telling people today just don't have any contact with people at all is not going to be a sustainable strategy. And so what happened in the early years of AIDS was a, a um, some community members with experts put together a manual on how to have sex in an epidemic. And that's kind of 
what we're needing now is some guidance on how to have a life in a pandemic in a way that is um, sort of equivalent to a safer sex approach, um, maybe safer, safer socializing or safer interaction that isn't zero risk, but gives people enough to go on that they can sustainably live their lives, be mentally healthy, and keep risk of transmission low. And we, we do have enough scientific evidence at this point to help us put together that manual or, or give people that guidance. I love that idea of giving Americans a manual on how to live a life in a pandemic. Uh, part of uh, some of the lessons learned uh, when we think about how uh, people were shamed uh, by being gay during the HIV AIDS crisis. And uh, when we think about now how people want to shame others for maybe uh, not wearing that mask and how that approach is not helpful. Yeah, that's one of the biggest lessons that I think we've learned from the HIV epidemic and also from efforts to address substance use. Shaming people for their high-risk behavior is really not an effective public health strategy, and it can often make things worse. When we think about what happens in the context of HIV, when people who have condomless sex feel that they're going to be stigmatized for it, which they, they have been for many years, they will not disclose it to their healthcare providers. And then they don't get the HIV testing and STI testing and pre-exposure prophylaxis that they may need to protect themselves. And we're seeing that playing out now with COVID where people are afraid to disclose that they attended a party because they know that they're gonna be shamed for that. So they don't tell contact tracers. And, and that's part of the reason that contact tracing is um, having a hard time right now. People are, are hesitant, hesitant to cooperate because they fear that stigma. So the best thing we can do in public health is try to give people a sense of the safest thing they can do. Also give them a sense of lower risk not zero risk things that they can do and support them in doing that and try to help them find the lowest risk place they can be while still living a sustainable life. So Julia, you're an epidemiologist. So talk us through as people are spending more time outdoors, uh, maybe seeing friends in a park or, or in their backyard and, and trying to, again, uh, keep six feet distance, uh, maybe not share food. What are some activities that people should feel comfortable doing now where it eliminates or not, not necessarily eliminate, but reduces the risk versus, uh, you know, having people indoors and um, be staying in a contained space? Well, I think you gave some great examples right there. We know that, again, I'll say the safest thing you can do is just be at home by yourself or with your household members, but most people aren't gonna be able to do that indefinitely. So fortunately, there are some low risk, not necessarily zero risk things we can do. Certainly being outdoors when you're in a spacious area and distant from people, um, you know, going for a jog, going for a walk, all of those things are, are very low risk. Doing those things with other people are can also be low risk, especially if you're maintaining that six feet of distance and especially if you're wearing a mask. Um, so that gives us a lot of options, actually, um, especially in places where there's more access to outdoor space, which is, of course, um, not the case everywhere or certainly isn't equitable. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's important for um, cities and states right now to be thinking about how to open up more outdoor space rather than closing it down in a way to try to get people to not gather. I think what we need is, is more space for people to be able to gather more safely.
Mm, that's an important point. Uh, we brought it up on the show uh, before, even when we think about uh, physical or social distancing in certain communities, that is a privilege where uh, certain families live in close quarters or there's multiple uh, family members who have jobs where they can't stay home. And so thinking about um, how uh, they may not have the option some of us do with working remotely or having more space to spread out uh, to uh, maintain that distance, Julia. That's right. I think, um, you know, access to, to green space, to parks, to beaches is definitely not something that's equally distributed. And of course, not everybody has the choice to maintain distance from people either in their in their living space or through work. I, I completely agree. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you, uh, as we this lockdown or uh, social distancing has had to continue, some families, some people are thinking about uh, having social contact in what's considered bubbles or pods. Can you talk about those ideas? And is that a safe way uh, to be around others? Well, any additional social contact people have is going to increase risk. But at a community level, one way to keep the risk relatively low is for people to stay within um, small bubbles or pods of people so that if somebody does get infected, it only spreads within that pod. And so the idea would be that you maybe your household and one other household agree that you will interact with each other as as if um you know, you're, you're one household, but we'll maintain careful prevention practices outside of that. Um, and some people have been doing this for months, um, and some, some places outside of the U.S. are actually recommending it um, as, a, as a, strat- a lower risk, but not zero risk strategy. New York City is, I think, the only place in the U.S. that I'm, I'm aware of that has um, included it in their public health guidance. Um, the Bay Area in San Francisco has recommended pods, but in a, they still recommend being outdoors six feet apart and with masks. So it's, it's kind of a different concept. Um, so I think it is actually a good thing for people to consider as long as they're aware that it's not a zero risk strategy and that it is important to talk both at the beginning when you're making this decision and also on an ongoing basis about what people's risk level is and, and what everybody understands when they say, I, I'm being careful. When we think about harm reduction, again, uh, Julia, uh, individuals should also think about uh, their overall risk in terms of their age and their health status. Uh, what works for one person may not work for another. That's right. I think when people assess risk, there are kind of three main things to consider. One is what's going on in your community right now. Is community spread increasing, decreasing? Is it high or low? Um, so that's kind of the, the first consideration, and that's going to be changing over time for each um, for each setting during the pandemic. And then a second thing to consider is what is your own risk and your own vulnerability to the virus? And what's the vulnerability of the people that you're going to be interacting with? Um, And then the third thing is what's the risk of this particular situation or setting that you're considering engaging in? And once you've assessed all of those risks, you can also think about what's the benefit? Is this something that I really need to do because I I desperately need social contact for my mental well-being? Or is this something that's really not that important and and it's a risk that I can easily avoid? And and I think that framework can help with decision making. 
Earlier, earlier, Julia, you talked about the importance of more outdoor access and opening up uh, public spaces, especially in a pandemic. Uh, so people that uh, don't have a lot of options aren't cooped up. Uh, I'm wondering, as we talk about beaches coming up in the rest of our show, as people think about uh, going to the beach, they've seen those crowded pictures uh, on in on the news in Florida and other places. That's very concerning. Uh, what should people consider in terms of the risk when they make a trip to the water? Well, those pictures, first of all, say are are a bit out of place. Um, once you notice the all the beach photos that are um, being attached to these dire pandemic articles, you won't be able to unsee it. It's really everywhere, and I think um, you know to some extent it helps to to have a visual of a crowd with. Um, you know, with not without that's not necessarily socially distancing and with without masks. But in general, we're not really seeing any evidence that beaches are a major source of transmission. Yes, house parties that happen near beaches may be a source of transmission and bars for sure. Um, but beaches themselves, especially if you can keep distance, which is usually um, something that you can do on the beach, are a, a pretty low risk environment as far as we know with wind and sun. Um, and I, I would encourage people if they do need to be outdoors to consider beaches as a place where they can do that in a low risk way. Julia Marcus, again, is an epidemiologist and assistant professor at Harvard Medical School. We'll, sh- we'll share a link uh, to her article um, for the Atlantic, Quarantine Fatigue is Real. Julia, thank you for the great information you've given us uh, as we think more about uh, how we uh, communicate and around uh, people in our communities. Thanks for your time today. Thanks a lot for having me. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, who should get beach access in a pandemic? My next guest says everyone, but that's not happening in all places. More with historian Andrew Carl after the break. You can join us too, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Now, it's natural to think about crowd control to keep the spread of coronavirus low. But does that mean out-of-town residents should be barred from accessing beaches, rivers, and lakes in communities that have these public waterways? In a recent New York Times op-ed, historian Andrew Carl asked, who will get to swim this summer? He highlighted exclusionary policies that disproportionately affect lower-income families, families, many from communities of color, that are already affected by closures of public swimming pools because of COVID-19. Andrew Carl joins us now uh, on Zoom. He's also professor of history and African-American studies at University of Virginia. Andrew, welcome back to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. We had you on a couple years ago to talk about your book, Free the Beaches, which focused on activism by people of color and Connecticut resident Ned Cole back in the 1970s to open up beach access in affluent Connecticut towns. Uh, Now you've uh, recently penned an opinion piece in the New York Times that I mentioned, where you talk about how these restrictions are coming back, especially in this pandemic. Can you talk about uh, some of the points that you raised? Yeah, I think that one of the things that we, and I think, that we need to focus on this summer is not just how do we practice safe social distancing, but who bears the the burden for um, these restrictions. And too often um, we're seeing this summer that 
Um, communities uh, that um, the wealthier communities, those that have robust public resources and, and public spaces have been putting restrictions that have disproportionately affected, in this case, non-residents, but, all, but pre- predominantly um, lower income families and people of color. And I, um, this fits into a longer history of, of exclusionary practices in public spaces in Connecticut, the Northeast and across the country. Uh, tell us, uh, remind us again about some of the history in these uh, wealthier communities, especially in our state of Connecticut. Yeah, I mean, you saw really beginning in the early 20th century with the proliferation of private beach associations up and down the state shoreline, and along with um, the creation of public beaches that many wealthier communities often put um, restrictions on, um, in some ways, narrowed the definition of the public itself to include only residents of those towns. Um, And that's really, and and along with that, you saw private beach associations seeking to privatize the shoreline and doing so really in violation of longstanding uh, legal precedents that define the shoreline as public land. And um, there's been a continues to be this tension between the public's right to public space and the interest of um, communities as well as uh, beachfront homeowners seeking to limit, if not completely um, you know, exclude um, segments of the general public from this public resource. Um, this is something that has really um, been an issue in Connecticut, um, especially as, as you mentioned during the 1970s when Ned Cole was leading protests along the state shoreline and continued up until, and it seemed to have been settled in 2001 um, when the the Connecticut Supreme Court in a unanimous decision said that towns like Greenwich could not um, restrict access to public beaches to residents only. But now with the pandemic, you're seeing some of these same towns um, trying to reintroduce these practices. Uh, it's something that's popped up along our shoreline. I know and even in eastern Connecticut, the day of New London has covered this issue, highlighting the towns of East Lyme, Groton and Waterford, limiting access to residents only back in June. I believe now East Lyme is giving away limited number of day passes for out of town visitors. And so, you know, some people may be listening, uh, Andrew, and think, well, we are in a pandemic and you don't want to see overcrowded beaches. What's wrong with uh, these towns? Uh, to the policy where they would restrict uh, access to uh, residents only? Well, I would say I think there, there, there can be a debate over whether or not um, beaches should be open, period, this summer. Although, as um, your previous guest, Dr. Marcus, said that, in fact, you know, beaches are low risk environments and, um, you know, getting outside into outdoor spaces is good both for, um, for people's you know, health and public health. But if we're going, to, I think the question is, if you're going to ha- open public beaches, you've got to open it to the public. And that includes all of us, everyone. Um, the definition of the public does not change during a pandemic. And I think that's what is really concerning here is that you're seeing um, communities that have a long history of exclusionary practices. I mean, this is not, you know, again, these are communities that have been um, challenged in court over um, exclusionary practices along their shorelines in the past that are now, again, using the pandemic as an opportunity, one might argue, to um, reintroduce these practices. Um, And I think that's what we should be concerned about is the the larger implications of what um, is taking place here um, beyond just, again, the question of whether or not um, the beaches should be open, period. Uh, We wanted to bring in a town perspective on this. And so joining us now on the phone is the first selectman for the town of Greenwich, Fred Camillo. Uh, Selectman Camillo, thank you for joining us today. 
Good morning. Great to be here. Uh, at one point uh, during the shutdown, Greenwich had limited access to town beaches. I think it was Greenwich Point and Byram Beach uh, back in May to residents only. I think that policy has shifted now. Can you tell us uh, what the policy is today for Selectman Camillo? Yes. Uh, again, thanks for having me on. Um, so back in March, middle of March, we closed down all of our public buildings, all of our public buildings. Uh, in fact, according to the Hartford Current, we were the first one to close down the senior center. I got pushed back from a lot of Greenwich residents about a lot of that stuff, uh, not, not people who are out of town residents. Um, but we, one of the buildings we included in the, the public buildings was one where we sold out-of-town uh, out beach passes. So that was not even a debate. Uh, and that's, that was something that we just recently, as we started to reopen lots of things, we reopened that building too. But we weren't going to keep it closed, but because people did go there for beach passes, we opened up the window. So right now, people can go to the window and no, with no admission to the building because of the virus, and we're limiting it to five a day, $8 each, and it's free if you're under five or free if you're over 65 we also allow people to ride in um, their, their bikes or walk in, and if they're, they're senior from out of town, you go for free. And we've had, you know, I was on the parks board when that lawsuit came about 20 years ago. And just a little history here, um, which the, uh, the, the professor didn't uh, speak to. Um, the one beach that everybody talks about, which is Greenwich Point, or the county, we call it Todd's Point. And the town... Uh, Pitched it in 1947. It goes through a neighborhood, a tiny little neighborhood, and there's a, a causeway, and, and we have a you know an easement to go over that. So there's always been a fear about crowds and limiting there. And I can tell you, as a kid, and I remember the 1970s, I was you know it was a place where all working class families went. As a member of the Greenwich Boys Club, which is not a Greenwich Boys or Girls Club, we go there twice. Uh, twice a week there in Island Beach. And it was really for, you know, lots of working class kids went there. Uh, it didn't matter your, your race, uh, your ethnicity, or your religion. It was it was a place where everybody went. Um, but we always knew there was a capacity issue there. And, it, and on certain days back in the 70s, when I remember, and even today, it gets backed up. And the car, you, there's only one access point into that beach. So God forbid there's an emergency it's always in the back of all of our, our minds that you know, it's going to be a long time before someone gets there. And it's, just, it's one of the things there. So we, we, even now we have, with selling these, these uh, day passes, we still have a capacity level because of, in addition to that, but because of the virus. So a couple of times already we've had to close access to the beach for everybody until it's thinned out a little bit because we don't want people on top of each other. I know the CDC said, Open air transmission is lower risk, but you never, you know, you see pictures from all over, you know, Southern California for one, and where it's exploding. You know, so we're we're trying to do is we're trying to spread people out. Where we want people to enjoy the summer, but we're trying to keep them safe. So we just say mm-hmm. spread out. Uh, if you're family units, that's fine. But uh, so it's always been, you know, that beach there is a particularly different circumstance where you're actually going through a tiny neighborhood, and it's a, the, the road that goes in there is very, very small. Um, I've actually been hit there a couple of times, mm-hmm. cars scraping by. So it's not it's not like a three- or four-lane highway going in to an open-air, you know, uh, beach. Uh, and, again, I, 
I know some towns have, have uh, are limiting access still right now because of the virus. I can't speak to that. All I can speak to is, is our town. So to just to clarify, as of now, town of Greenwich, you've reinstated single entry passes to mm-hmm. town beaches. So non-residents, if they drive over to the to the community center, the civic center, they can purchase these passes. Yeah, and that was our plan all along. But you know, to, like everything else, we closed down all our public buildings, and we've had to slowly reopen them. The last thing we haven't reopened really is the is the playgrounds. The fields and the parks are open, but the playgrounds where people are touching, you know, we, we're worried about the touchable surfaces. We're going to reopen them too very shortly. We're just figuring out ways to make sure that they can be cleaned round the clock um, just to be, to be safe. So that's always been the plan from the beginning. Um, so, uh, you know, those, those are the facts. So just to, to let people know out there. Hmm. I wanted to go back to Andrew Carl again, uh, who is a historian, uh, as we talk about uh, access uh, to beaches and public waterways uh, around our state and other places. Uh, we know that there are other towns, as Selectman Camillo mentioned, uh, like uh, Fairfield and Norwalk, that are restricting access to residents only on the weekends. And when you have that kind of restrictions, there's fewer and fewer places uh, for non-residents of shorelines uh, to go. And that can then lead to overcrowding, uh, Andrew. Yeah, exactly. And I think uh, the, what the first selectman was was saying about the, the efforts to, to limit capacity. I think you know no one's arguing whether or not um, towns should be able to limit the capacity on their on their beaches. The question here is is you know who gets do do certain members of the public get special privileges or do they um, get to move to the front of the line if we're on a um, first come first serve basis? And I think that's um, really the question here. And I should also point out that you know, this argument that, um, you know, places like Todd's Point um, are being restricted to residents only in the interest of limiting capacity and protect and protecting um, the community and the environment were the same arguments were being used um, to justify the resident only policies back in the um, 1990s and early 2000s that this, um, the state Supreme Court rejected at the time. So I, um, I think we should also ask the question of, you know, why are the few public beaches on the state shoreline so overcrowded? And that is a byproduct of the fact that over the years, so much of the state shoreline has been gobbled up by private interests, that there's very few places um, where the general public can go. And again, that gets back to what Dr. Marcus said at the outset, is that um, you know, we need to ensure that there is um, ample amount of open space available for the general public. And um, in Connecticut especially, we've seen over the years that um, too much open space, much of the, the state's um, open lands have been um, put in the hands of private um, interest. And that's something that we need to address um, as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Selectman Camilla, I'm wondering if you could respond to that. We know that this pandemic has exa- revealed that there are so many racial and socioeconomic inequities that have been exacerbated. Uh, people that don't have, uh, you know, the the chance to live in uh, the town of Greenwich because of, you know, it's a wealthy community. They may not be able to afford it. And the fact that you've got this beautiful uh, shoreline that, that, you know, is not open uh, to all uh, if they don't have uh, a car or the ability uh, to pay uh, the fee uh, to use uh, that those are beaches in your town. Yeah, well, I'd love to respond to that. So lots of people here, we have a ton of 63,000 people. Not everybody is super wealthy. Not everybody is white. I know the professor may have a preconceived notion of Greenwich, but it's, I can tell him it's a wrong one. I was born and raised here. It's a very diverse town. 
uh, I was, you know, from very working class stock, and um, his uh, his point about well, everybody deserves equal access, and uh, and and should go to the front. You know, no one should go to the front of the line. Well, lots of people. Greenwich sends up more money to the state capital than any other town by far, um, and and that includes people who are working two and three jobs to pay rent to live to live here. And we everything is pretty high here, except for the, the mill rate, which, because of the way the government has been run here, um, is very, very low. But the rest of the, you know, everything else is very, very expensive. Um, so the town has not taken any federal money at all whenever we've had disasters there. And we all, again, it's, you know, to say, well, they're just using this capacity limit, you know, now it's always been that way. You know, we, for, you know since I've been involved, um, in the government, again, that's going back to the 90s, uh, we dealt with that issue. And in Greenwich, we never looked at it as, well, it's, it's a, a private exclusive club and these are trying to privatize the beaches. We all know that you can access any beach, even a private beach, up to the high water mark. And that's always been the case and it always will be the case. I frequently take my kayak out on the sound and I'll go, I'll end up on a private beach for a few minutes and no one ever says a word because they can't. And it's, it's about the public can access that. Now, going, you know, to say that people, Greenwich is, you know, you're using Todd's point as a, as a cover, that's just absolutely not true. And, uh, again, we've, we've always had the policy that we were going to make sure that the day passes are, are, are open there for everybody. Heck, we have rel- uh, residents who have relatives in other towns and, they love taking them to the beach here. So, as you, as you mentioned, somebody may live you know, in, a, in a community that's inland and they just don't have access to the shoreline. And I think that's always got to stay uh, you know, part of who we are. We want everybody to enjoy our parks and our beaches. But right now, the, you know, the reason why I think you called me to be on the show is because um, someone smelled a rat. And they said, oh, you know, they closed it, their, their building, to, so now they could just hide behind the not true at all. And the facts state something very different. And if you go back and look in March at all our public statements, my public statements, we, we had to close these facilities down. And again, people were not happy with me for doing that. Some are still, some friends are still mad at me for doing that. But it was done with health, uh, the public health in mind. Mm-hmm. And it's going to continue to be that way. Uh, uh, we, know, people are going to stay with people are going to say whatever they want to support mm-hmm. their hypothesis, but at the end of the day, um, I would as long as I'm in office, I will do whatever is mm-hmm. right for the people of the town of Greenwich, and, and that also goes for people visiting the town because we don't want them to get sick either. We did reach out to Attorney General Tong's office uh, last week, uh, Andrew Carl and Sleckman Camillo, to ask, uh, you know, whether these uh, policies, again, excluding non-residents from using uh, these uh, beaches and waterways during the pandemic is legal. And in a statement, uh, the Attorney General's office wrote the question of whether towns can establish that excluding non-residents from Connecticut beaches can meet that standard is a local legal matter. And they also strongly support efforts by local governments to protect public health, but those protections must not be used as an opportunity to deprive the public of their constitutional rights. Uh, Andrew Carl, what do you think of that statement? And again, it does seem like uh, towns have more leeway because we're in a pandemic uh, to say that through because of public health, uh, we need to restrict access. Yeah, I, I mean, I think clearly um, 
we're seeing an effort, and I think you know some some um, towns have been pretty open about this that they're essentially daring the courts and the, um, the state to do any, to to do anything about it, and essentially trying to run out the clock on this summer um, before um, these um, policies are challenged. But I, I want to point. I want to respond to on um, what the first selectman said. I mean, I I definitely recognize that Greenwich is a, as a diverse community, um, has a um, a working class community that um, has disproportionately relied upon their town beaches. But the fact does remain that you know that it is also a community that is very unaffordable to um, a large segment of the state's population, and also as well that has a long history of exclusionary practices, not just on its shoreline, but through um, its housing markets, through zoning ordinances, and through a variety of measures that have um, worked to make it an exclusive community. Um, and again, that's you know that's that's one issue. But all but again, if you're going to have a public beach, um, it needs to be open to the entire public. And I should also mention again, in response to something else that was mentioned there, uh, you know, Greenwich has made a big show of rejecting federal dollars over the years for maintenance um, of its shoreline, and that was itself a strategy aimed at um, you know fending off legal challenges to the resident-only policies in the past. But make no mistake, every inch of the Connecticut state shoreline has. Has benefited from federal and state taxpayer support. Um, so the argument that this has been entirely um, a self-financed um, beachfront is just simply not the case. We did get a call from a listener who wanted to reiterate that the towns of West Haven and Milford have also restricted their beaches, not allowing uh, non-residents to even park on the beaches. So this is not something that we're just singling out the town of Greenwich again. The town of Greenwich has uh, changed their policy as uh, we've seen transmission rates uh, become low. Uh, But Slickman Camillo, I just wanted to have you respond uh, quickly uh, to Andrew before we head to break. Sure. I mean, there's not much disagreement on what Attorney General Tong said, or what the professor said, as far as, as you know, uh, making sure that public health is, is is first and foremost. And again, Greenwich, <clears throat> this wasn't some secret plan, and um, we had the the, the um, plan to open them up to everybody as soon as it, you know. It, we weren't even sure as far as when we were going to be reopening reopening the beaches to to our own residents. Uh, back in March and April. So, you know, it's, we're really, and who knows what's going to be around the corner. Um, but as far as, you know, it, uh, I said about, the, you know, taking federal money and it, it was used as a strategy. I, again, while I can't speak for anybody else who came from before me, I do know for a fact that people that since, you know, when I've been in, since I've been involved, I've always been concerned about capacity. Even on our other beach, there's only a finite amount of, so <clears throat> that was always uh, a concern. But the main one is Tosh Point only because it, you've got to go through a really a small little neighborhood with a very small causeway to get to get there. And, uh, yes, we've all benefited. Everybody's benefited from federal tax dollars on the shoreline, but not on, within the beaches there. The town has paid for, for that. Uh, it was in private hands up to 1947, and the town has paid for all the improvements. And, we love having people there. When there was a, a protest a few weeks ago, or a few months, no, maybe a month and a half ago, um, I told the protesters, "We want you to come back and enjoy our town. It's a it's a very welcoming town, and certainly um, anybody who's grown up here will will attest to that." And to his point about the uh, professor's point about affordability, heck, I can't live in most neighborhoods in lots of towns. Um, you know, it's it, it, all, all we can do is promote uh, 
opportunity, equal opportunity. But that's about it. At the end of the day, I can't say to somebody, I want to go live in your neighborhood because it's a really nice neighborhood, but I don't have the money to do it or the wherewithal to pay. And that's the whole thing. We, we're, we try very hard. Now we're doing, we've, in the last few years, we've really built more affordable housing units than we've done, I think, ever. Um, so we're, we're trying. But when land is expensive, it's not the easiest thing to solve. And so you're always going to have people... Um, and I'm not talking about the professor, but I'm just saying in general, you're always going to have people accusing you of things without the facts or just to to promote the facts or rearrange them in a way that supports their conclusion. And that's always going to be that way. You see that with everything. But mm. all you can do is uh, be honest, be, be transparent and do the best you can for everybody. And again, I hope we I hope this uh, virus does not, you know, we don't see a second wave. I hope more and more people come to our beaches and I hope more and more people practice uh, this, you know, the physical distancing and, and, and are safe. That's, that's, well, that's my concern. Thank you, Fred Camilla, again, the town of Greenwich First Selectman. We'd love to have you back to talk more about uh, how you could uh, open up further affordable housing in your community, but we appreciate your time today here on Where We Live. Uh, Andrew Carl will stay with us. He's a historian and author of Free the Beaches. And coming up, we're going to talk about how this issue also is playing out in the northwest corner of the state. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Uh, some towns with beach or river access have limited the number of people who can gather there, but these rules and ordinances highlight equity issues that block certain groups of people from public waterways. We heard from someone on Twitter who writes, when I moved back east, this completely blew my mind. I had no idea you could limit people's access to the beach, to water, to sand. And the fact that the beachside town residents treat access to water as theirs is unconscionable. And I say this as a Fairfield resident. Uh, this issue has also played out in other parts of our state. Joining us now by phone is Lindsay Larson. She's a program manager for the Housatonic Valley Association. Lindsay, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. Also with us on Zoom is Andrew Carl, or Carl, who's a historian and author of Free the Beaches. Uh, we've been focused on what's been happening along shoreline communities, but in Northwest Connecticut, uh, how are you seeing issues of uh, in the pandemic about worried about crowding and then dealing with restricting access to residents only? How is that playing out? Sure. So the Housatonic Valley Association, or HVA, um, is a watershed organization for the Housatonic River, and part of our mission is enhancing public access to the river. So in doing that, we have an outreach program where we're out at public sites every weekend throughout the summer talking to people, trying to keep the sites safe and clean. So in doing that this summer, we've seen a serious increase in visitation um, in the number of people out at these sites. And because of that, and then um, also concerns about COVID and public safety, we've seen closures. So unfortunately, we're still seeing um, a lot of folks coming up and trying to get to the river, but with fewer places to go, and that's leading to crowding in the remaining open sites and then additional closures. So we've actually seen a bit of a domino effect up the river of site closures and people still coming up, but with fewer um, options to get out onto the Hussatonic River. Mm. That's interesting. When you see this playing out in towns in the, the northwest part of our state, do you see it also uh, racial dynamics or implications uh, that should be resident-only limitations uh, for this riverfront access, Lindsay? So we have seen, um, I 
We have seen some areas move to residents only. Uh, we've also definitely seen a lot of just outright closures. I will note that in through our outreach program, we've been conducting visitor surveys for a few years now, and we don't collect data on race or income, but we have learned that a lot of folks are coming to these sites from nearby cities, such as Danbury and Waterbury, Connecticut, and also New York City. So obviously these um, areas, folks may have less access to these beautiful scenic areas that we have in northwestern Connecticut. Um, and so we're seeing an uptick in the number of people uh, coming up here just to picnic, swim, and hang out by the river. Um, and we want to make sure that we're managing these sites in a way that allows for for equitable access among all these various user groups. Uh, I also want to note that we're really um, seeing a shift in how the sites are used uh, and who's using them, which may be contributing to some conflict. Mm-hmm. So tell us more about how your organization's working on this issue moving forward, because this pandemic isn't going away anytime soon. And as we've heard from an epidemiologist at the top of the show and with our other guest, Andrew Carl, it's important that the public have public access. Uh, it shouldn't just be uh, for some, but but for all. Right, exactly. Um, so we actually see this as a really exciting time to take the momentum of all these conversations around river access and really think about how we're managing access in our region and how we can do that in a more fair and equitable way for the really the diversity of users that we're seeing. Um, so uh, the folks who have been using the river for ages, as well as these newer user groups that we're seeing. So we're doing our continuing our outreach program. We've also started an Instagram page at Housatonic Info to get the word out about site closures and try to redirect people to some lesser used sites. And then finally, we're starting to organize people around a structured conversation later this year, um, really just trying to get everyone together who's affected by this issue and start talking about long-term solutions that allows people to get out under the river um, in a way that's safe and keeps the river clean and also is equitable for all the variety of people who uh, want to use the water. Mm. Uh, Andrew Carl, I wanted to bring you back into this conversation as we talk about, again, uh, public access to water being restricted in places uh, not along the shore, but uh, in communities that are also uh, wealthy. And we see the, this as an issue uh, across uh, our state. Uh, oftentimes we think of Connecticut as a microcosm of income inequality in our country. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, as I wrote about in my book, Free the Beaches. I mean, in many ways, Connecticut is one of the most unequal states in America and one that, um, as a result, has struggled with these larger questions about public rights um, to public space. And I think that what, what's happening this summer is um, not just in, um, on the shoreline, um, not just along rivers and waterways, but on the streets of, of American cities as well. We're seeing a, broad, a larger struggle over the public's right to public space and over common resources. Um, And this is one that um, extends beyond um, just the right to recreation. When we think about uh, access to water, it's also we see urban areas impacted by uh, pollution uh, and how uh, that also is something that you don't see in certain communities because they don't have to to live with uh, those conditions and that it's also an issue, Andrew. Absolutely. I mean, this summer, um, New Haven has had to close down Lighthouse Point Park um, as a result of um, a water main break that sent sewage into Long Island Sound. Um, You're seeing cities as well that are closing public pools, not just because of the pandemic, but because of of the budgetary Mm -hmm. crises that cities are facing that are themselves a product of years of underinvestment and austerity. Um, So we're seeing uh, this summer really a a variety of 
a number of different issues that are symptomatic of, of um, broader problems with inequality that are coming to a head and um, in some ways kind of converging on both literally and metaphorically on shorelines. Well, you've given us a lot to think about uh, today. Andrew Carl, professor of history and African-American studies at University of Virginia, also author of the book, Free the Beaches. Thank you for joining us again here on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. I also wanted to thank Lindsay Larson, a, a program manager at the Housatonic Valley Association, a conservation projects manager there. Uh, Lindsay, uh, to learn more about your organization and the efforts that are underway, where can listeners go? So they can check out that new Instagram page at Housatonic Info or our website, hvatoday.org. And I'd want to note that they can email me directly. We're really looking to hear from people who are affected by this issue that want to be involved in these conversations later on this year. Great. Well, we will uh, share your email uh, to uh, listeners as well uh, if they respond and want to know more. We appreciate your time, Lindsay. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, today's show was produced by Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Uh, coming up this Thursday, Americans are starting to really examine the monuments and statues in their communities, including here in our state. We're going to dig into that debate and we're going to hear from artists about sculpture today. You can join us. That's Thursday. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.